Alright, well we are going through church history, and last week we, we finished talking about World War I, and as, as an historian, it breaks my heart to spend like one week on World War I and not talk about any of the battles or anything like that, but it, it's really not germane to the larger picture of what we're getting at. Did that in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War for specific reasons. I can't really do that in World War I, so I'm going to have to skip of that, and it just it hurts me. It hurts me down deep. But I want to talk about what happened after the war, because after the war that we talked about last week, everybody is scrambling, trying to figure out what to do afterwards. Because remember, we, we talked last week, everyone was kind of left shell-shocked. I mean, some people literally PTSD after World War I, but our entire culture, the, the Western world was sitting there saying, I don't know what to do now. What do you do with God after something like this? Well, 1916, as part of the war effort, Father Divine founded something called the International Peace Mission Movement. You ever hear of Father Divine? He was up in New York. He was. He was up in New York. Very, very famous guy at his time. Um, his name was George Baker, maybe. Or it might have been Frederick Edwards, maybe. We don't really know. He never told anybody what his real name was. People have tried to piece this together afterwards. He just went by Father Divine, or his full name, the Reverend Major Jealous Divine. Um, no, because Jealous, you got from Exodus, you know, God is a jealous God, and the Reverend Major, because he's an important figure. He's not just a Reverend, he's a Reverend Major. He's not just a Sergeant, you're a Sergeant Major. So, Reverend Major... Jealous Divine, that's his name. Um, I began a ministry, originally for African Americans, didn't just stay that way, in which he proclaimed he is, in fact, God in the flesh. He's Father Divine, the Divine Father, that's who he is. Preached a derivation of what we've talked about so far as, as new thought. Remember when we talked about this with Phineas Quimby and Mary Baker Eddy, this idea of saying um, life is, is a matter of trying to figure out right thinking. If you have right thinking, everything works well. If you have bad thinking, things work badly. Kind of like when people talked about animal magnetism as something where you are essentially cursing other people with, with your negative thoughts and, or blessing them with your positive thoughts. Our negative or positive thinking affects the universe around us. Mary Baker Eddy went so far as to suggest everything is just thought. God is just this divine idea. Anyway, he just took the idea that the divine is inside all of us a step further, or 95 steps further, and said, he is that divine. He is in everybody. He is God. Not just that God is in Mark and God is in Randy. He's like, I am God. I, that's, that's who I am. And so you can worship me, which is another reason why he didn't tell anybody about his past, because as he liked to remind people, God has no mother. I'm just God. I've always been God. That's who I am. Yeah, very popular guy. Anyway, 1944, famous songwriter Johnny Mercer comes to hear one of his sermons and heard Divine preach, you got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Does that sound like a song? Yeah, so he wrote an Academy Award winning song, or Academy Award nominated song. Accentuate the positive. Have you ever heard that song? It was in, uh, in a movie called uh, Here Come the Waves. It was sung by Bing Crosby. But the reason that it sounds like a sermon, if you listen to the lyrics, and the reason he even says this in such a funky way, accentuate the positive, is the way Father Divine said it in the sermon. So and next time you ever hear Ben Crosby singing this funny little ditty, you go, right, and he learned that from God himself. <laughs> anyway, so Father Divine said, you know what? World peace is only going to be gained by right thinking. It's only going to be understood if everybody thinks right thoughts, right? Because if, if good thinking, if good thoughts save the world and bad thinking, bad thoughts curse it, then everybody has to think right thoughts. So he came up with very specific doctrines. Number one, Father Divine is God, right? That's important. It's, if he's God, then that has to be the very first major right thought. Secondly, heaven is therefore a state of right thinking. Very Mary Baker Eddy of him, very Christian science of him. You know, it's, there's no afterlife, there is no hell, there is no heaven, other than your state of mind. So, right thinking is itself heaven. All religions ultimately point to God, because all religions point you to right thinking. See number one. What is number one? 
He is God. So, I mean, you'd be tempted when you hear number three to go, oh, yeah, okay, what? No, no, he's saying, so all religions, Buddhists, Hindus, Christians, all technically are still pointing toward me. So, right thinking. Number four, family is best done as part of church community. If you separate your family away from the church community, you've done something wrong. Therefore, all genders are to be strictly segregated. You're not to spend time with people of the opposite sex. No, 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 no. Celibacy is crucial. Everybody needs to be remain celibate um, unless you are in the process of making new church members specifically for that reason. Uh, and uh, other than Father Divine. Father Divine can pretty much have sex with whomever he wants and apparently frequently did. Um, and children are to be raised by assigned guardians, not by their biological parents. Because, again, family is best done as a church community, not as a biological club. I mean, this makes total sense, right? Yeah, because you need to get past this idea that it's all about physicality and biology, and you need to remember everything should be done for the church, which is why all worldly goods should be shared with the whole church community. Everybody shares everything. It's a good communal system, kind of like Jesus people. When you enter Jesus people, all of your stuff becomes the stuff of everybody. You don't have anything of your own. Except for Father Divine, who owned large estates, drove a Cadillac, stuff like that. He once paid a $5 fine with a $500 bill. You know, that sort of thing. He's famous for his diamond uh, class, one of his ties, stuff like that. Anyway, children should thus be educated in a public communal context, not privately. Homeschooling, private schools, religious schools, that's wrong. You should support the public school system because everything should be done on a communal level. All racial divisions should be eliminated. Started as a, a particularly African-American religion, it didn't stay that way because you need to get past, again, past all that physicality. Right? There's some consistency to this. In fact, after his first wife passed away, although he never even acknowledged that she did, he never even acknowledged that she was even ill, never even visited her on, on her deathbed because... He was busy running the church, which is why there's no official record that, that she died. She might still be around. We don't know. No, but I mean, there's no official record that she died. We don't know exactly when she died, just apparently that she did. Because nobody in the church talked about it, because there is no death. Because you're, you're following God, the Father himself, nobody dies. She just, you don't see her very much anymore, is all. I mean, why put a body in the grave, but it's not like she's dead. In fact, she was resurrected and reincarnated as a white Canadian woman who was already in her 20s by the time his former wife died. So he remarried this white Canadian woman, which kind of sent a big stir through the black and white communities at that time. Because in the 19-teens, for a black man to be marrying a white woman, or 1920s, I guess, that's kind of a big deal. But he is trying to say all this we should get past the color people's skins. We should get past all the physicality of things. All of which sounded exactly like the kind of religion Jim Jones wanted to have. And if you're sitting there going, well, ironic. No, Jim Jones studied Father Divine. Wanted to be the spiritual successor. Tried to be the spiritual successor. Said, okay, if you follow Father Divine, after Father, Father Divine dies in 1965, Jim Jones said, and now I am the reincarnation of Father Divine. At which point, Mother Divine... Uh, said, no, 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 no. In fact, she's still running their church. Even today, she's like in her 90s. And they're st still running running the Father Divine Church, the the uh, international peace movement. But yes, this is exactly this kind of communal controlling thing, socialism, that Jim Jones said, yeah, that's what I want to do. So almost everything you think of with Father Divine's ministry, that's also going to be what we'll talk about with Jim Jones's ministry, because it's consciously trying to do the same thing. Like Jim Jones, Divine's power, his cross-demographic influence, made him kind of an important figure in the community. Everybody wanted to be his buddy. Church's various social programs really actually did help the poor. Again, like Jim Jones, who really did socially help the people he helped until he passed out the Kool-Aid. Um, for instance, in, in, the, in Father Divine's church, they have daily communion banquets to worship him. Their version of, of communion was to have an agape feast, this really fancy, really nice banquet every night. They spent hours and hours every day prepping for this. But as a result, they fed hundreds and hundreds of people in the middle of the Depression. They really did actually help people. 
And so even like white politicians wanted to be his buddy and try to get uh, in favor with him. However, he picked the wrong bedfellows, politically speaking, because he didn't like FDR. He thought FDR's New Deal, the whole welfare system, he's like, all that is is handouts. We don't want the government to give us stuff. We should be the government. He wanted socialism, not socialist programs within a larger capitalist system. So he allied himself with the American Communist Party very heavily, and they were extremely supportive of him. Because they're like, wow, poster child for everything we're trying to do. He does it well. Of course, during the Cold War, they became like the bad guys, right? Not so great for Father Divine and his system. So it kind of started to fall out of favor in public opinion. But you really have to admit that Father Divine, at least arguably, there's a lot of social theorists that argue this, Father Divine really kind of began both the peace movement and the civil rights movement, like 40, 50 years before the rest of the country caught up to him. Which is an interesting concept that somebody this messed up might do something that the rest of the country eventually, a generation later, goes, actually, that makes some sense. I don't know, learn what you will from that. Okay, same year. The True Jesus Church is founded in Beijing. Because we don't want to just talk about stuff going on in the United States. Remember, Pentecostalism is exploding around the world ever since the Azusa Street Revival. It's going all over the place. It finally hits China in 1916, founding a church that ultimately become part of China's Three Self Patriotic Movement. Have you ever heard of anybody know what the Three Self Patriotic Movement is? Okay, that's the official sanctioned Protestant church in China. Is the Three Self Patriotic Movement? It emphasizes three emphases. First one being self-governance. In other words, your church controls itself without foreign influence. There is no foreign denomination that's in charge of your church. It's, it's a good Chinese church. And self-support. There's no financial support coming from overseas. You're a good Chinese church. And self-propagation, i.e. there's no foreign missionaries coming in. You're a good Chinese church. It's just indigenous people. Three self. You are completely Chinese, and you are completely patriotic. You are, you guarantee that you are going to remain devoted to the People's Republic of China. Because if that's, if you do that, if you're self-governing, self-supporting, self-propagating, and you completely guarantee that you're always going to follow China, then you can be a, a government-controlled Chinese church. It's not quite as restrictive as we tend to think of it in the United States today, but it sure ain't free. So... Anyway, theologically, the church was part of what was called Oneness Pentecostalism. Anybody familiar with Oneness Theology? Okay. Oneness Theology says God is clearly one, not this unbiblical trinity thing. I mean, it's kind of like Unitarianism, but it's specifically saying, nope, trinity is not... Where do you find the word trinity in your Bible? Yeah, and they, which are divinely inspired, right? The study notes in your Bible, that is scripture. No. The, the word Trinity is never in your Bible, as, as good Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses will repeatedly tell you. Um, telephone, also not in your Bible, so they don't exist. A uh, lot of words not in your Bible, and yet perfectly acceptable descriptors of things. Anyway, just quick synopsis. Most Christian churches, ours included, see God as... Definitely one. One God. There's only one God, but he's expressed in three persons at the same time, right? That God the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Son is God. And they're the same God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, right? They're distinct, but they're all part of the same God. Remember St. Patrick when he said, give the whole example of the shamrock? It's like, one leaf is distinct from another leaf. They are not the same things, right? And yet, they're all part of the same shamrock. This is not three shamrocks. This is one shamrock with different parts. It's a limited example, but you get the basic idea that he's trying to get at. Part of why it's a limited example is because it's a beautiful example of classic Trinitarianism, isn't it? But it's also an example of modalism, uh, which is what which is what the, uh, the oneness Pentecostal people would believe. Um, that there's one singular person of God, but he's expressed, or at least perceived by us as being expressed, 
in different modes in different contexts. He looks different at different points. It's still the same God. There is no distinction between him, but he's coming across differently. The classic analogy that they'd like to use is water. Depending on the context, it's a solid, or it's a liquid, or it's a gas, right? But it's always still water. What are you guys chuckling about? That was my lesson in PBS, remember? Yeah. <laughs> Horrible heresy, and we'll talk to Donna later. Uh, no, 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 no. There, it's actually a really good analogy. It, again, it's just it's limited. Oh, I know, no, 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 no. Okay, for those listening online, I'm messing with Donna. It's perfectly good. Because the idea, well, the idea is they're saying that the, the chemical composition of water doesn't change, even though it's state. It's still the exact same thing. There's no, it's still H2O. It's still the same thing. The structure might be different. It might come across different, but it's still the same thing. What the oneness Pentecostal people would say, what oneness theology says is that at any given point, God looks like this, God looks like that, but it's still exactly just the same guy. To the modalist, the idea of a trinity is kind of a creepy, ungainly thing. It's gross to them. It doesn't make sense to them. you get got this big old lumpy God. Instead, they say it makes far more sense to think of God as having multiple modes. Even to someone as people, even at the same time. God could have multiple modes at the same time, but still just one mind, one person, one personality, expressed in multiple different ways. Either in succession or simultaneously but not three distinct persons in one. Okay, I know that's a lot to take in, but do you understand the basic difference between what they're saying there and, and Trinitarian? Some do. So, some do. Like the true Jesus Church would say, yes, technically you could do it simultaneously. Okay, I get the picture here. If, you, if you've seen The Watchmen, there's a character that can be doing multiple things at the same time. But it's still just one guy with one thought process. One, th but he's he's thinking so complexly. He can do multiple. He can multitask, literally at different places at the same time. If you can multitask, certainly God can, can't he? <coughs> there are certain verses that don't work so well. Uh, with the, for instance, in, in the, uh, the True Jesus Church, they say you're supposed to baptize in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, you're supposed to pray. You know. Actually, aren't there examples of baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? The name, singular name of a single God. He's like, okay, you're, you're, you're having to jump through some hoops to make that work. To be fair, though, modalists will tend to look at Trinitarians, Unitarians will tend to look at Trinitarians and say, well, you guys kind of have to jump through some hoops to make your Trinity doctrine work. I would just say we tend to have to jump through fewer hoops, and, and it, makes a, it makes more sense. But some... Some modalists will say that, yes, he can do multiple things at, at the same time. Most will say, no, no, it's either a solid or a liquid or a gas. Throw plasma at him sometime. Anyway, um, there's over 24 million adherents right now, today, to oneness Pentecostalism alone. 24 million, not including all the other churches like the Unitarians or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Filipino Iglesias Ni Cristo, who comprise together another 27 million. So you've got lots of people around the world who would consider themselves Christians and are devoutly non-Trinitarians. Different ways of looking at things. I, I would look at it and say incorrect way of looking at things. I would say several of those aren't even remotely Christian. But they all seem to think that they're Christian. Anyway. 1917, next year. I remember, because this is all post-war years, people trying to figure out, how does this all work? How can, how can religion still work after such a horrible war? Soviet Union decides to protect religion. It's part of the Constitution that they're going to protect your rights to have religion. During that October Revolution we talked about last week, the Red Army confiscates all the property, all the wealth of the Russian Orthodox Church, because they said, rightly, that the Russian Orthodox Church had supported the Tsar, had supported the White Revolution in February, so, obviously, they're the bad guys. So we get to take all their stuff, because we, the, we won the Civil War. So that's what happens, right? In like, every, in, like, every Civil War except for the United States, we, we're like, okay, we won the Civil War, now go just be us. 
we're not taking your stuff. We just want you to play with us nice. <coughs> we beat, beat people in wars and we go, how can I help you rebuild your infrastructure? We don't do war right. But because um, everybody else says, I win, and so I get to take all your stuff, you know, the way war is supposed to be. Yeah, but that's war, man. Oh, yeah, I agree. But okay. Hopefully, you understand how, how much I'm kidding, because there's a lot of times that we specifically did go and just take everybody's stuff, right? Like the Philippines and, you know, Samoa and, pardon me? Yeah, little incident. All those kinds of stuff where we went and went, okay, this is ours now. Oregon. <laughs> we went to Oregon and we're like, hi, trappers. Do you guys have a warship? And they say no. And we say, okay, welcome to the United States of America. Yeah, I <laughs> Anyway, so the Red Army says, you are clearly, clearly supporting the wrong guy, so we get to take all your stuff. It's okay for us, because we're cleaning house. It's okay for us to take your stuff. But it doesn't mean we're anti-religion. Big, massive, violent, social upheaval everywhere. Um, in fact, 1918, we've already talked about the Tsar and his, and his family, the Tsar and the Tsaritsa. 1918, they're finally executed by the Red Army. There's this worldwide urban myth that the youngest daughter, Anastasia, somehow survived. You ever heard about it? There's not even a cartoon movie out there about Anastasia with a bat. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> somehow she survived the slaughter, and she's still okay. In fact, there's even this famous in imposter named Anna Anderson who claimed till her dying day that she was, in fact, Anastasia, which, which she wasn't. DNA evidence said, no, she had no relationship to the Romanovs at all. She had absolutely no relationship. They dug up the remains in, in mass graves, and they yeah, these are all the Romanovs. All of them died. Sad but true war story, all the Romanovs died. They were executed in, in uh, 1918. But it's a nasty time. So nasty, in fact, that the United States invaded Russia. You've heard about this, right? Surely, you're, surely your history class has told you about when the United States invaded Russia. Yeah. She wasn't. Well, Shirley told me. The United States Army invaded Russia to end the Civil War. And because they were afraid that with all that upheaval that the, the Germans might get to all the stockpiles of arms, ammunition, etc. And because they didn't really want the Bolsheviks, the, the communists, to get their hands on all that kind of stuff. So the, so the British and the French and the Americans all invaded Russia. Anyway, um, but once the White Army... They're like, oh, we'll bolster the white army. We'll support you guys. You guys can get back into power, and so did. Syria all over again. Or beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the white army starts to fall apart. The white army, everybody starts to leave and go back to their homes and steal stuff. And once the white army began to fall apart and the British withdrew their troops, America's like, well, um, it's pretty much just us now. I guess we'll just go home. Um, things seem to be settling down. We're not going to hold anything here. We're, we're smarter than Napoleon and Hitler. We figured out we're not going to hold Russia. We just kind of wanted to see if we could support the White Army, which doesn't appear to almost exist anymore, so we're just going to leave. But the Russians still remember that time that America invaded Russia. These are a bunch of Bolsheviks troops being guarded by a bunch of American troops. And even to this day, Russians will say, oh, you invaded our country, which I think is tremendously ironic when you think about it, that we make movies about wouldn't it be horrible if those Ruskies invade America? What would they do? Which Russia has never done. But we invaded Russia. Oh, well. These are stuff you ought to know as to why exactly do these two groups really hate each other and fear each other? Why did Khrushchev seem to think that he was in genuine danger from America? Because he was alive at this point when America did this. Oh, wacky fun. All right. As part of the new Soviet Constitution, the right to practice religion was completely protected. You get to be religious, which we don't normally think of when we think of the Soviet Union. There are a couple of caveats on that. Number one, you can only do it privately. Um, no public schools can teach anything about religion. They can't support any religious views. No politician is going to support religious views, which is strict communism, right? Anti-religiousness. We don't live in a we live in a free society where public schools can teach religious things, and politicians don't get in trouble for saying that they believe in a young earth or not in evolution or 
We live in a free society, not like the Soviet Union, right? Okay, secondly, the state is still seen to be the primary source of pravda, truth. Um, that all churches are going to be monitored uh, and controlled to make sure that they never say anything that goes against the party doctrine. They never say anything that is socio-politically incorrect. Again, luckily, we're not like that. The state has not... No, because there's a separation of church and state, right? So the, the state has no right to tell any churches what they can and can't do, can and can't preach, correct? No, we just talked about that in a sermon about a month ago. No, the state has lots of rules about what churches can and can't say, can and can't do, and increasingly so. So am I saying we're the Soviet Union? No, no, no. I'm just saying when you... No, don't make that face. No, I'm not... Well, maybe. No, I'm just saying... I'm just saying that there's not some of the hard, fast, big, bold, black lines between good guys and bad guys, secular countries, in this mindset. I think all secular countries, by definition, are going to be adverse to actually letting the church do church-like things, what with the fact that the church is essentially countercultural. But, oh, and I should say, yes, the state newspaper is called Pravda, Truth. So, and the state is the source of truth. That's the official position. In point of practice, it was a little different than the Soviet Union. I mean, that's what was on paper. But what do you do practically? Priests are regularly killed, even crucified. That was kind of a big deal back then, is to drive priests out and crucify them. One famous example, a priest tried to cross himself before they killed him. So one quick-thinking soldier grabbed his, his sword and hacked off his right arm before he could do it. So, not a great appreciation for religion. Um, they were forced to public hu publicly humiliate themselves. Like one famous example where an 80-year-old priest is stripped naked, then forced to wear women's clothing because it was freezing out, and then marched through the public square and then hanged, dressed like a woman. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, friars, and there was an abbot, who were scalped and then beheaded. Or the seven nuns that were boiled to death in a vat of hot tar. Um, or then there's a priest who was blinded and facially mutilated, um, and then paraded through the streets, and then buried alive. So it is a little different in the Soviet Union than, say, in America today. So I, I kind of want you to see, on paper, it isn't that much different. It was different, but not that much different. In point of practice, quite a bit different. So what does that suggest to you? If in paper, it's not hugely different, but in practice, what you do with what's said on paper, it can be kind of different. What does that suggest to you? Because all of this is technically legal under the protections under the law because these guys had supported the wrong political group. No, nothing. <laughs> okay, we had two people simultaneously saying slippery slope. Again, I don't want you to hear me being alarmist. That's not really where I'm going with this. What I'm saying, though, is, yeah, at any given point, if you say, well, but I'm protected by the law, you say, no, you're protected by the current interpretation of the law. By the way, interpretations of the law change all the time. Even particularly with, depending on who becomes Supreme Court Justice. So, quietly, though the presidential elections are important, really the most important thing sometimes can be who gets to be on the Supreme Court. So a lot of times you've got to stop and say, what does it mean that we have this safety? What does it mean that we have this, um, this legal support for the church? What? Stop and think. What your guys' generation is going to have to deal with, we talk about what's going on in the world today, but you guys, in 10 years, 20 years, the world you're looking at is going to look very different from the world that we're looking at right now. I don't know exactly the way that'll look. But a lot of that is dependent on you and on the people you talk to on Facebook. What are they going to do about the law? How are they interpreting this? Because a lot of it really does come down to what does public opinion say the government should or shouldn't do? What does public opinion say a church should or shouldn't do? And you're the public that's opinion is going to matter. By the early 1920s, there was a populist outcry. The public spoke. By the way, the government incited the populist outcry. But there was a populist outcry saying, we need to get rid of all 
religious holidays. Why, they're just a pain. So all the government-sponsored grassroots efforts said we needed to do this. The famous St. Vladimir's Cathedral in, in Kiev was converted into a museum of religion and atheism. What? It's a religion of... Talking about religion, talking about atheism, talking about different beliefs. You know, it's just it's even-handed, because it's not just religion, it's, it's everything. Of course, the emphasis was really on the evils of religion and the blessings of atheism. So Voltaire is awesome, and pretty much anybody religious is evil. But that's just history. By the way, if you want to control people's minds, control their media, and control their history. If you can read 1984, if you can change people's understanding of history, you can manipulate them, which is part of why we're doing a history class. Not so that I can manipulate you, but so you sit there and go, wait, I want to make sure I understand this. Wait, we invaded Russia? I didn't ever hear that. Wait, aren't we the guys who are always the good guys in wars? Aren't we? Really? No. Sometimes, sure. You can make a strong case that uh, Somalia, we were the good guys. We wore white hats about as much as you can in a war. Spanish-American War? Kind of dark hats on that one. Um, there's, there's, it's complex. Don't let people hyper-simplify your history to the point where you miss what is actually going on and why. They started having regular public lectures about atheism. Start off as debates. They allowed for free and open debates that became increasingly orchestrated by the government between religious people and atheists. It started off as free and open, and then it became kind of puppets talking badly about religion and the best people that they knew about atheism. And then it eventually just evolved into public lectures on atheism. And here's the fun part. Most people didn't even notice the shift. They just saw we were publicly talking about atheism, and we're still publicly talking about atheism. Experts said stuff that I don't quite understand. By the way, don't most people do that, even with their, like, news feeds? Just like... Okay, I found a news feed that I like, and I'm just going to watch it, I'm just going to read it. The news feed that pops up when I'm reading my emails is decidedly leftist, and they're unabashedly, they'll even talk about that, they, they have no problem with that. But what's interesting is, I would occasionally get, I don't know, twice, maybe twice, maybe three times a week, a story about Obama. I'm getting like four or five stories about Donald Trump a day on my news feed, about how horrible he is, he's going this lavish function tonight. Oh, this is horribly expensive and wasteful. And, you know, do you realize how much it costs to go to, like, the, you know, the annual reporter's dinner? You know, do you have any clue how much money presidents spend on this kind of stuff? But it's just interesting, where time and again, people say, that's just news. That's just truth. I'm getting truth from people who know to give me truth. And it shapes public opinion as time goes on because people don't critically evaluate any of it. Party membership was refused to anybody who was educated as a religious person. If you are, if you went to college, if you went to seminary, if you are an educated person, consider yourself religious, you don't get to be part of the, of the party. If you are uneducated, if you never went to college, if you never went to seminary, then you can join the party. If you are educated, and not religious, you can join the party. If you are uneducated or undereducated and you want to join the party, we will educate you about the importance of atheism and about why religion is bad. We will educate you. What we don't want is all those people who were propped up and puppets of the church that had supported the white army and supported the Tsar, because everything is under those auspices. This, this is all still technically legal under the protection of religion. Your religious right is protected. You get to be religious if you want to. I mean, you don't get to be part of the party because certainly it doesn't make sense for us to put our political opponents in our political party, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't let slave owners join the abolitionist party, would you? Would you? Nobody's answering that, would you? You are a member of the abolitionist party and somebody says, I like having slaves. I think slavery is important and good. Can I join your party? And you would say, yeah. yeah. Well, what if he says, because it's a free country, and I want to. I'm a woman, and I want to go to the Citadel. Citadel's only for men. No, I'm a woman, and I want to go. You realize it'll, it'll stink for you. In fact, 
the first one to the Citadel within a couple months was like, well, this stinks. This is this is really horrible. I need I need to have my own bathroom. Well, but we do community bathrooms here at the Citadel. Well, I need my own bathroom. And I can't do that physical stuff. Give me a slightly lesser version of that. Why? Then why did you want to go to the Citadel if you don't want to go to the Citadel that everybody else is going to? Because I want to make a political statement. Don't I get to in a free country? So I want to be part of the abolitionist party. Don't I get to in a free country? Russia makes total sense. They're like, why on earth would we let people who supported the white army be part of a political party that supports the red army? That doesn't make any sense. There's some logic to that, isn't there? They might be saboteurs. They're colonists. You know you can't trust them. Don't you remember how bad the Tsar was? Don't you remember his troops and how they fired into crowds during riots? Remember how bad the Tsar was? And these guys, these religious people, they supported the Tsar. Do you remember how when the White Army tried to take power in the, in the February Revolution, they slaughtered whole villages of Jews? Do you remember that? Do you really want people who supported that to be part of the decision-making leadership of your country? Do you? This makes total sense, doesn't it? Therefore, anybody who's Christian, anybody who's religious, is problematic. We don't want them to be part of our leadership. That makes sense, doesn't it? If everything you read makes sense, if the history is being written and rewritten increasingly by the same people who say this, if you listen to mandatory public lectures every week about atheism, if there's a if there's a fair and open-handed museum of atheism and religion that shows you pretty clearly that atheism has been the blessing of humanity, how many years of that does it take before you start saying, well, oh, they've got a point? So, we don't want educated religious people. We want uneducated religious people. We want a little less intellectual religious people. In the process, by the way, 6,800 clergy were executed after being round up for being guilty of counter-revolutionary agitation, i.e., they didn't support the party. They spouted religious things when we have clearly indicated that religion is counterproductive to communism. If religion, as we've all just agreed, was supporting the Tsar and was supporting the White Army, then religious, religion is counterproductive to the revolution, correct? Therefore, it is counter-revolutionary agitation to say Jesus loves you, to say you really ought to read your Bible, to say that there's a God more important than the state. That's counter-revolutionary agitation, isn't it? I mean, logically, following what we just talk, got argued. Do you see where, if you're just building these propositions, you can come to a really horrible conclusion and that you really should have stopped it long ago in the premises? By the time you get to the later 1920s, the government instituted a purge of all colleges and universities, exiling or executing any intellectuals who engaged in counter-revolutionary agitation by practicing religion. If you're going to be teaching our children, and yet you're going to be religious, we need to get rid of you. Because clearly you are trying to teach children, the sweetest, most innocent parts of our country, to hate their own country. Now we need to get rid of you. By the way, 1929 law forbade any public or open communication or teaching on the part of any kind of religious groups or organizations. You can't say or do anything publicly. You can only do something in the, in the safety of your own home or within the four walls of a church building that's being carefully monitored and controlled by the state. But you can't do anything. You can't proselytize. You can't join in any political conversation or any kind of sociological conversation. You cannot. It is illegal because all you're doing is counter-revolutionary agitation, right? By the way, how many years of that does the church agree to before people say, you know, you don't even hear about Christians anymore. It's kind of an old-fashioned grandpa thing, right? Children are forbidden to take part in any religious activities. They can't go to church anymore. Because again, remember, they're trying to poison the mind of our children against the state. Do you want them poisoning the mind of your children? Do you? Of course not. So no, children are not, those religious people can't take children. Instead, we're going to encourage them, encourage, I mean require them to be part of the young pioneers, basically scouting. We're going to have our own government Boy Scout and Girl Scout Corps, where they'll learn good, solid, communist, state-loving, supporting values, and become indoctrinated to become party members. So like, we're going to encourage them to inform on any family members that engage in any kind of 
counter-revolutionary agitation. And they did in droves. Because increasingly the children being raised in the public school system, spending all their time outside of their home and away from their families, who never get to see the inside of a church building or hear anything about Jesus Christ. You let the state control your children. You let the public school system be the only people who teach your children. You let all the secular things that they're involved with be the only things that they're involved with. After a while, that's the way they're going to think, right? Information in, information out. That's, that's, that's what you get. Taking a nod from the French Revolution, they even changed the work week. Like, we no longer have a seven-day week, we have a six-day week. The rest of the world may have a seven-day week, we have a six-day week, which means that you're constantly having to work on Sundays, or what you used to consider wrongly, a Sunday. Back traditional religious holidays, for those people still trying to keep track of that sort of thing, we're going to make sure that there are state holidays that land on that religious holiday that you are mandated as a worker to take part in. You won't have time to do this Christmas thing or this Easter thing because you're going to be busy doing the mandated things. We're going to remove religion. Can you do that? Can you change the holidays so that Christians no longer see them as holy days? In the Soviet Union, you can't. Union is actively trying to stamp out religion, America goes, we're totally going to throw ourselves into religion. Totally going to do this. Prohibition. You ever hear of Prohibition? Good. That one, I figured you guys would. After World War I, again, because of the disillusionment, because of all the stuff that went on, all of a sudden we're going to have an increase in alcoholism. If you remember, there have been at least two other points in history where America had, had massive problems with alcoholism. I don't mean, well, people drank. I mean, Quarts and quarts and quarts of heavy alcohol on a daily basis, kind of thing. I mean, massive amounts of, of alcoholism. And that's kicking in again after the war. People came back just saying, I just, I want to drop out. I don't want to be part of this anymore. I don't even want to think about this. So it's even worse than a lot of, of what had come before. On top of that, you have an influx of a lot of specifically European immigrants into the United States after World War I, right? Because Europe is basically just this <coughs> charred wasteland. And so they come to the United States, and if you're a poor immigrant, you're going to come to the urban centers for the most part. And if you're going to come to the urban centers, they're going to swell. What do you know about inner cities that swell with too many people and not enough jobs? Violence, crime, corruption, because now it becomes cronyism, who gets a job, who doesn't get a job, all that kind of stuff. And if you're going to be a, a mob boss or a political boss and you're going to try to sway people, where would you think of finding people who don't have a lot of money and don't have a job? I mean, you can try to go to places of work and try to agitate things there, but where are you going to look for the most disenfranchised people that you can find? In bars. So, urban center bars become increasingly moving... Because when you think of a pub, you tend to think of like a... Or, or the modern American equivalent, the sports bar. You tend to think of, it is, isn't it? The modern American sports bar is basically our version of a British pub. We're, well, everything in the United States is louder. Um, but, but you go and you, you spend quality time with friends, you engage with them, you, you, you get a pint, you, you drink, but you're also getting food. It's a social atmosphere. You're playing darts, you're watching the game, whatever. That's more the way bars used to be, but increasingly after near the end of the, of, the, of the last century, and especially after World War I, this is where bars increasingly become what we oftentimes think of a bar as. You go, I'm going here to drink. That's what I'm doing. Remember when, if you're really old, remember when Cheers came out, the show Cheers, and it was such a big deal, ah, oh, this is where everyone knows your name. And everybody across America said, I don't know, any bars like this. You know, wherever you walk in, they go, yeah, we all know each other. Yeah, it's like, no, you go to a bar to either pick up a woman or just drink something. You stare forward and, and you take liquor as if it were bad medicine that you didn't like. I've never understood the idea of a shot. You know, people go, ah, oh, I'm going to spend a chunk of money to take something, and I go, ah, <laughs> <laughs> I do that with cough syrup. Why are you doing this to yourself? That's a terrible way to do sort of mentality of what a bar is really kicks into gear after World War I. Bars become far more unsavory places. 
Whereas before they were more like pubs. Now they're more like, I mean, even saloons, you might go to gamble, you might go, it's like, nope. Increasingly, criminal elements, people are just going to get drunk and things. And then there's the suffrage, one, the, the women's suffrage movement. Women are finally... Votes for women. What? What'd you say? Votes for women. Votes for women. Um, I love this argument, by the way. Women bring all voters into the world. <laughs> Everybody who votes came out of a woman first. Don't you think women ought to be able to vote? Um, I like that. Love that argument. Anyway. But for the first time, women are beginning to develop a real political voice. They're beginning to be able to speak to things in their society. And the vast majority of temperance workers, the vast majority of people who are pushing for temperance for the removal of alcohol from, from the system, are women whose families are struggling because their husbands are dealing with alcohol and alcoholism. So there's a, I mean, there's a whole bunch of religious people, there's a whole bunch of politicians, but largely it's housewives pushing the temperance movement. At the same time that housewives are saying, you know, we get to vote. So, by the way, you remember Carrie Nation? Oh, yeah. The, the classic, you, you should never forget Carrie Nation. Large woman running around with an axe. You should never forget Carrie Nation. You're like six foot nine, three hundred pounds, built like a like a defensive tackle, and you're running around with an axe, screaming that, yeah, and chopping down bars and things. At a time when people are gentlemen, so it's not like you can punch a woman or something. So she runs into your bar with an axe. You go, well, that's it for the bar. There's really nothing we can do. But the whole idea was, her husband had problems with alcohol and alcoholism, and so. Not alone. So as the suffrage movement gains force, the temperance movement gains force. They're both linked to one another. But the main instigation, the main thing for prohibition is all the religious talk, all the religious people in the United States. All these people who are trying very hard to recreate and maintain a pre-war understanding of religion. Can we please just get back to that? Well, now, you remember last week we talked about how the 1920s were the antitheses of the 1950s? Where the 1920s, they're like, anything different from what came before, that's what I'm going to do. Men, you wear your hair short, okay, now you're going to wear your hair long. Women, you wear your hair long, okay, now you're going to wear your hair short. Men, you're always clean shaven. Young men, you're always clean shaven, yeah, we'll grow a beard. Old men, you always grow a beard, yeah, okay, well, now you're clean shaven. Women, you have short skirts, long skirts, long skirts, short skirts. No, you don't show your arms. You do show your arms. Anything different, that's what we're going to do. Um, whereas in the 1950s, it was, we're going to do a, 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 basically an exaggeration of what came before in the 40s. Anything they did in the 40s, we had, we had shoulder pads, and we got, we got wings now. You know? a, anything that was going on in the 1940s, we're going to do that in spades in the 1950s. Flying none, don't even get me going. Uh, but here's the thing, there was this move in the 19-teens to do exactly what they did in the 1950s. Can we just get back to the way things used to be? Can we just make things the way they were? Just fake it. Can we push things back five years and just make it like that again? Now we're back to what you were saying. That doesn't work. You cannot artificially say, let's just make everything okay again. Which is part of why it terrifies me even nowadays when I hear people in the, in the church saying things like, well, this is the way things were when I was a kid. Can't we just make it like that again? No. A, because it was never like that. You're remembering things 40 years out of date. That's not actually the way it was. But B, because, no, you can never just fix one part of the system artificially. A system, all the parts push each other to become something. You have to change the whole system. You have to either see this whole system as something that needs to be adapted or you need to change the hearts of the people generating the system, right? You can't just change one part of it. Take one cog out of your watch and see if it works. You go, well, I suppose that you can make a digital watch. You can change the whole system. Or you can change the, like, the DNA of, of the watch. You can, you can change the people. That changes the system. By the way, both of those arguably are what Christianity is doing. Jesus stepping into the world saying, I'm changing the whole system of how this works, and I'm trying to change the spiritual DNA of the people within the system. That's how you change the system. You can't just change one part. Anyway, 
He got famous speakers like Billy Sunday. Remember, we already talked about him, who said, whiskey and beer are all right in their place, but their place is in hell. <laughs> classic, classic. Man, I paid good money to see a Billy Sunday sermon sometime. That would have been great. Because um, he's nuts. But it would have been colorful. Um, and when you see what's beginning to happen in the United States, when you think of the 1920s and early 30s, you think of this dissipation. You think of narcotics parties. You think of drunken lasciviousness. They were trying very hard to be the proto-late 1960s. Right? So... When, when, when religious leaders see what's starting to happen here, all of a sudden they get terrified going, we know what happened in the French Revolution. We see what's going on in the Russian Revolution. We don't want that kind of godlessness here. How do we stop that? Well, one of the main things we're seeing is alcohol, drugs and things. So we need to stop that. Prohibition. What's interesting though is the alcoholism did decrease during Prohibition. I mean, we never again had the same sort of alcohol problem in the United States that we did post-World War One. It just never... The closest we can come to that is, uh, like, in the early 70s till, to now, till now being, the, like, the drug problem and the war on drugs that, that, that uh, the presidents have, have called. But, but alcoholism? Nope. Never at that kind of level again. Even in the 50s when everybody had a martini when they got home from work, it's like, it's not even remotely the same sort of level of alcoholism. That's great. Unfortunately, crime skyrocketed. Why? Because everyone still wants alcohol. Yeah! You still want alcohol! And so, uh, uh, this is a fun little uh, little cartoon in the newspaper. East side, west side, all around the block, the bootleggers run the Russian business at all hours of the clock. Yeah, which is a horrible poem. But anyway. <laughs> but the idea is, there's always going to... Bootleggers all over the place making alcohol for people because people still want an alcohol. That's, that's what they're going to do. But they also, in order to make and distribute alcohol in large quantities, it's one thing if your uncle is making brandy in his basement, but if you really want to make money at this, you need to make large quantities of alcohol and distribute it systematically in an organized fashion. So we created organized crime. We created an American syndicate of criminals who did this sort of thing. And then after Prohibition, they didn't just go away because they made a lot of money doing this. And they're like, well, now we're not going to make a lot of money distributing alcohol and things, so these are large blocks of cocaine that, that the police are shoveling into a furnace. Um, when we think of cocaine, we think of that as a, oh, yeah, and yeah, there's a whole neighborhood that's going to just feel good today. Um, <laughs> But when we think of large blocks of cocaine like this, we think of, you know, cigarette boats in the, in the 80s or whatever. But this is something that they're dealing with in the 30s. Because... There are cocaine jokes in, um, the, in Charlie Chaplin movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Are there? Well, I don't doubt it. The ones made in the... Well, actually, all through, but especially the 20s. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you, you have to understand that legislating morality tends not to work real well. In fact, in this case, legislating morality just generated new and worse forms of immorality amongst people. Again, as we've talked about, if you're an Amish community and you say all women should wear long skirts because we don't want to tempt people, okay, and so when a woman takes a step up on a, on a, on a, on a staircase and you get to see her ankle, congratulations, you've created new immorality. In our society, very few people are turned on because you get to see a woman's ankle. Not usually that strange for people. Um, so congratulations to the Amish. They created a whole new sin. They created a whole new kind of temptation. You can never just change part of a system. You have to work to change the people because they will continue doing the same sorts of things or find new sorts of things. In fact, I think... Solomon even talked about this. There's nothing new under the sun, and yet people are racing, Paul talks about people racing to create new forms of sin, new forms of things. Ah. 1919, Barth's commentary on Romans is published. Uh, have you heard of Karl Barth? Not Barth. Please don't say Barth. Karl Barth, Swiss theologian who pastored a liberal Reformed church. Um, 
he increasingly became disillusioned with the liberal theology of his day. It's like, now, I watched this in, in the war. What, what were we guessing? He does! Actually, that's a good point. Now I can't unsee that. Um, um, but he's like, you know, during World War One, I, I saw a lot of these liberal churches trying to, trying to get people through this, but all this is just empty structures, shallow intellectualism, it's just a bunch of people saying, and now let's do a recitation. I, I, my legs got blown off. My son is dead. Recitation number seven. Let's sing a hymn nobody can actually sing because it's really hard to sing in a language nobody speaks anymore. It's just like, this isn't doing anything for me. But also because he studied guys like the, the theologians like Soren Kierkegaard who said, if you really are an intellectual, if you really, really, really think about this, it will drive you to having a deeper appreciation for God, a more personal and relational interaction with God. You will have a more sovereign God. If you really engage your mind, you won't get farther away from God, you'll get closer to God. So Bart says, you know, if Kierkegaard's right, these aren't intellectuals, these are pseudo-intellectuals. These are people doing intellectually-ish sort of things, but they're not people truly engaging on deep levels with God. That's what we need. We need deep levels, and create something called dialectical theology, or neo-orthodoxy. No, he didn't like the term neo-orthodoxy. Basically, the argument is liberals are way too much dependent on natural theology. What's natural theology? Now, you look at creation, and then you extrapolate about a creator after that. I look at this, and I say, well, then this must be the way God is. Which is not bad. I mean, you can... The first chapter of Romans sits there and says, you know, you can look around the world and you can see God's handiwork and things. Yeah. No, I can... It's all right. But it's inherently limiting and even dangerous if that's all you're doing. Because at best, you're just looking at a big version of what is nature. You're looking at a big version of what is natural. You're trying to say, if this is good, I will try to extrapolate what I think perfection is from that. You're going... You're going cart than horse. What are you going to say? You are. You're making yourself the judge on this kind of stuff because you're saying, my finite understanding of this, I can pretty much extrapolate that in, into an infinite. And he's like, that's inherently dangerous unless you counterbalance it. So what we really need is to counterbalance it with a rigorous study of revealed theology. What is revealed theology? Yeah, the Bible. What has God specifically revealed about himself in his word? What has he said? Which is the very thing the liberals have been trying to deconstruct, right? Higher criticism has been saying, let's tear down the Bible so that it's not really a thing you can trust. So all we're left with is kind of a deistic God who made nifty trees. Doesn't help you get through World War I. Not really. So Bart and Bultmann and Niebuhr and Fuller and a whole bunch of other neo-Orthodox thinkers said liberal theology led to this empty, worthless, intellectual puffery. All these pseudo-intellectuals that think they understand things because they use big words all the time. But ultimately, all that just leads to despair or pridefulness. Because you're either sitting there going, oh, I understand things, and then stuff happens in your life, you go, I don't understand any of that. It's like, right. You thought you did, and you really don't. Those, in despair and pridefulness, those are the things that ultimately de degrade both the church and secular human culture. This lurching back and forth between I am so prideful, or I am so hopeless, or I am so prideful, or I am so hopeless. And so he says, what we need to do is write against higher criticism and get rid of these artificial Christendom structures that all these mainland denominations are holding on to. That's all they've got is structure. We need to get past all that. And so he says, we need to radically emphasize how God is transcendent. He's not just the God of nature. He's the God who created all things, including logic. And so we need good, pure, propositional doctrine. What do I mean by propositional truth? What do I mean by prop... Paul, help me out here. What do I mean by propositional truth? Uh, exactly. It's, it's, it can be expressed contextually, but the truth of it is not contextual. It, it, it's based on logic. And so, yes... I can talk about this schneit. I can talk about it snows. I can talk about all sorts of different things, and that's going to come across differently in different contexts. If I'm an Inuit, I might even have different words for snow. I can express things at different levels, but the basic concept is something that is not contextually de de dependent on my ability to express it. It either is snowing or it's not snowing. 
there's a const there's a, a constant propositional truth, something I can propose to you that makes logical sense. Which means that they start developing something of a love-hate relationship with evangelicals. Because both of them are trying very hard to take a very strong, intelligent, biblical stance against liberalism. Right? Both evangelicals and neo-orthodox. But evangelicals tend to be biblical liberalists. Whereas the neo-orthodox people say, well, I mean, the Bible's flawed. I mean, still error-ridden. <laughs> the truth of it is pure. But propositional truth trumps the really funky, idiosyncratic, messy stories of the Bible. I mean, when it comes down to it, logical, internally consistent doctrine is more trustworthy than what Jesus said to that woman that one time. Because that's open to interpretation, and logic is not. Again, I totally disagree. I teach logic. You know, but you see where they're coming from with this. And it's like, well, that's not interpretable. And I'm like, <laughs> everything is. Everything's interpretable. Statistics are the most interpretable thing in the world, and everybody seems to think statistics are gospel. So the neo-Orthodox theologians tend to look at evangelicals and say, you guys are experiential. You're focused on personal faith issues like sin and redemption and and forgiveness, all of which is great, but it's, there's so many other deep, rich things, like look at the irony of Genesis 38, and look at, I mean, understand the complexities of what it means, exactly what happened here, and just go, yeah, yeah. But I kind of want to understand how I should live on a, on a daily basis. And they said, ah, you evangelicals, you're overly focused on that. Karl Barth famously said, in the Church of Jesus Christ, there can and should be no non-theologians. Everyone should be a theologian. You should always be thinking about the complexities of theology. I don't disagree, but it's interesting that as a result, they tended to push the evangelicals away, and as a result, the evangelicals tended to say, okay, well, I guess you guys are just overly intellectual. So you know what? We're going to read your commentaries, and then we're going to live. <coughs> Thank you for sitting alone in your study for five years writing a commentary on Romans. I'm actually going to go live Romans out. So the, the, the Orthodox people say, ah, you evangelicals, you're simple-minded. The evangelicals look at the Orthodox people and say, you guys are need to get out a little bit more. <laughs> Which one's right? I'm a huge fan of a little from column A, a little from column B. I love discussing theology, and it's pointless if you don't actually use something with it. So... Don't be a gorilla out there just living life without thought. Don't be a filing cabinet not living life with a great deal of thought. Be a human being. Oh, well. So, the two movements tended to start growing apart. When they started by kind of working together, quickly grew apart. Neo-Orthodox people tended to grow within mainline non when I say non-confessionalists, you, you don't, it's, it's not about when you became a Christian. Did you accept Christ as your Savior? In a lot of mainline denominations, if you were to ask, so when did you become a Christian? They look at you. I don't understand the question. Well, when did you accept Christ? What do you mean? There was a point when you moved from death to life where you said, I, I used to believe this, and then I realized Jesus died for my sins, and I'm a changed human being. When was that? I don't know. I guess I've always kind of felt that way. So, yep, that's very much a Church of Christ-y, Lutheran-y, Presbyterian-y kind of thing. And the neo-Orthodox people tend to thrive in those contexts where liberalism tends to take the, the form of, well, it's the way we've always done it, empty kind of traditional structures and a license to do what the culture seems to think is moral instead of what the Bible might think is moral. While evangelicalism tends to thrive within Arminian or confessional churches like Methodists, Pentecostals, Baptists, and things, where if they're liberals, it tends to take more the form of being pretty self-centered in your cosmology, going into prosperity doctrine, having ecstatic services, saying, I don't need the church. I've got my own individual walk with God. I like to walk in a forest. That sort of thing. This is where evangelicals tend to go, wait, let me talk to you about this. But you can see how those two kind of drifted. And so thanks to the neo-Orthodox movement, it's a great way of combating liberalism, but ironically it tended to make evangelicals more Arminian. So if you're Calvinist, Randy, who's left the room, this is a sad day for you. 1920, the Patriarch issued an encyclical, and that's where we'll pick it up next week. How would you summarize what the world is like at this stage in history? Okay, crazy. There you go. Everything's 
whatever they feel necessary to keep it controlled. Yep. I think that's a lot of extremes going on. Don't like a lot of extremes. There's always reaction things. But yes, this is a perfect time. I'm going to link these two together. Let's close them in prayer. But yes, this is a time when everybody's trying to prop things up. Everybody's trying to figure out how to how to do this. Because everybody's saying religion as we understood it doesn't work. Because what with us having a giant world war. So we need to fix it. We need to prop it up. We need to react against things. We need to prohibit this. We need to get rid of the church. We need to get rid of those liberals. We need to fix things and react against them. The idea of saying, wait, let's build something. Let's... Let's see religion actually working. Let's see God's power. But the only person that we've actually brought up today that felt that way was Father Divine, who thought he was God. So yes, right now, the world is in a little bit of flux, and they really need to stop and say, are we reacting against, or are we living out? Hey, we probably ought to be thinking about that nowadays. Are we just reacting against sociopolitical things, or are we standing up for truth? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity today to be your ambassadors. We look at the world of a hundred years ago and we say, wow, everybody's reacting so strongly about socio-political things and everybody's throwing themselves into dissipation and nobody really knows what Christianity should be about and we're all trying to do faddish things and Lord, it's the same way today. I pray, help us to stand for truth. It may express itself in different ways, in different languages, but help us never to let the truth itself morph. Help us to remember that you are a constructive and strong and powerful God. Help us to live that out in meaningful, constructive, powerful ways. Give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.